We're going to be in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. It'd be great if you could have that passage open in front of you. And we're going to get stuck into it straight away. And Paul is going to be talking to the Ephesians who are Gentiles. So they're, they're Christians, but they come from a Gentile background, not from a Jewish background. And he's going to walk them through a timeline. And we're going to follow with them. And we're going to see under three broad headings this morning. He's going to show them and show us what you once were, what Jesus has done, and what you now are. What you once were, what Jesus has done, and what you now are. And these are great truths to look at during a period like this. Even the background slide that I've chosen for that heading, it's a shocking picture, isn't it? People shaking hands. Do you remember when people used to do that? But this passage, well, that picture fits it. And we'll find out why. We'll find out what the great news is for us as a church as we go through lockdown, as we look at this passage about how we are brought together in Christ. So, what you once were, verses 11 and 12. Paul begins by urging them to remember what they were before they were saved by Christ. And the situation he describes is pretty desperate. So they were separated from God and they were under God's judgment. We saw that last week from verses 1 to 3, dead in sins. But the way they were separated was played out in a different way from the way that the Jews experienced it. Because the Gentiles didn't even have God's law. And they didn't even have a promise that one day a Messiah would come. A future king who would, who would save them and who would uh, bring about peace. And so verse 12, Paul says they're separate from Christ. They were excluded from the citizenship and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And so they were without hope and without God in the world. The Jews could know the promises that God had given to Abraham. He, they, they could know the, know the commands that God had given to Moses. They knew the history of God's faithfulness to them, even if they had been totally unfaithful themselves. The Gentiles didn't have it. And so Paul describes them as those who were once far away, distant, out of the picture, missing the good news. Imagine a, a famous celebrity visiting a town, the kind of person that everyone would want to see. Thousands turn out to, to see them, but a town just down the road, four or five miles away, doesn't hear about it at all. The people there know nothing about this visit. Well, that's the Gentiles. They're far away. The Jews took advantage of the, the blessings that they had from God to become proud and arrogant and, 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 and to, to, to criticise and, and lord it over the people who are uncircumcised. You see that in verse, uh, verse 11. And that isn't the way it should have been because God had said to Abraham that they were going to bless all peoples. Be a great blessing to the world, but it hadn't worked out like that. And the irony is that the Jews were proud of the fact that they had these laws from God. But could they keep them? No. No, so they had no right to be self-confident. And so what do we see at the start of this passage? We see separation and hostility. Separation between, between all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, between God, the creator, and the people, the people that he has created. Of course, the Gentiles, they had their own gods. But their gods were useless. They weren't real. They were without the one God. And so they were living without hope. And isn't that just like the world around us today? People living without hope. Lost. Uh, and it's hostility as well. That word is used in verse 14 and verse 16. Hostility goes much further than separation. So I'm, I'm separated from my neighbours. There's a wall just over there. I'm separated from them. But there's no hostility. 
except when I, except when I play the guitar too loudly. But th there's not really hostility between us. There's just separation. But the Bible says in our natural state, there is hostility between us and God. And it goes both ways. We are rebels to God's good rule. And we are under his judgment as a consequence. And that's hard to hear, isn't it? People don't really like to hear that. Maybe you're listening in this morning and you're thinking that isn't an encouraging thought. That isn't what I tuned in for. But the Bible says that is our natural situation and we need to know that. Separated from God and with hostility. A bit like two armies waging war along a line. Separation and hostility. And the separation and hostility is then played out within humanity between us and other people. And so we're all fractured as a human race. Here in this passage, it's primarily the Jews and the Gentiles. And by the time of Jesus, some Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles. For example, if you were a Jew and you came, you're walking down the road and you came across a Gentile woman who was giving birth, but she was, she was struggling and she was ill and it wasn't going very well, you couldn't help. You weren't supposed to help because if you helped, you might help bring a Gentile life into the world. If a Jewish boy or a girl married a Gentile, often their parents would carry out a funeral service for them. In verse 14, Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility. And he may be thinking of an actual temple wall in Jerusalem. At the time of Jesus, there was a temple that Herod had built and the inner courts were for Jews. But there was an outer court for Gentiles and from there the Gentiles could look up and see the temple. But they couldn't approach it. They were cut off by a wall, a metre and a half thick. And it had signs on it saying trespassers will be executed. And all through human history, human beings have erected walls like that, haven't they? Walls between each other. Maybe actual walls like the Berlin Wall. Or maybe it's walls that you can't see but still divide. So it's walls uh, between people of different races or different cultures, or between the young and the olds. Maybe it's between men and women. Maybe that spills over in somewhere like Nazi Germany and Rwanda. It explodes in such hate that, that millions of people die. Or maybe it's a bit more subtle. It's a little bit of sexism, casual sexism. Maybe it's, it's a little bit of discrimination about disability in the workplace. Or maybe it's just looking down your nose at another group and going, I'm glad I'm not like them. I don't want to know them. And so that's the situation. Paul says the Gentile Christians in Ephesus need to remember what they were, separated from God and separated from other human beings. And the simplest way to picture that is to imagine a room, maybe uh, in the King Centre, maybe the main hall there, just a big room, and imagine a wall running down the middle. And that wall running down the middle is the, the, the separation between us and other people. Some people are on one side, some people are on the other side. And then think of the roof. And the roof separates us from God. That's just a picture. But we need someone to come along to take away the wall and to take down the roof. And that is what Jesus does. What Jesus has done. He's reconciled and he's made peace. Look at verse 13. These are wonderful words. Paul says, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God didn't leave us in the state we were in. He rescued us from the pit. And look how central Christ is to this. Verse 13, in Christ Jesus you were brought near. It's through him. 
People have come up with a huge range of ways of becoming one with God and of gaining peace. Some people have tried pilgrimage to special places where you travel a long way, you go to the place, you find a relic and you kiss it or you say a special prayer. Some people have tried offering things to idols uh, made out of stone or wood. Some people have tried uh, various forms of Eastern meditation. Some people have tried emotional experiences, music and lights. Some people try philosophy. Some people try political ideology to try and get peace. And Paul says there is only one way through the sun. Through the sun. God hasn't given us a range of options like a takeaway menu where you can look down them and go, oh, yeah, no, I think I'll choose that one. There is only one option. There's only one route through Jesus Christ. And it's only through his death on the cross. That's what these verses say. It's through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. This is how we can come to God and know God and be welcomed by God and be at peace with God. And if you are someone this morning who is running around trying to find peace, stop striving. Stop desperately searching. Can I really encourage you to turn to Jesus? Jesus does it all. Verse 15, he sets aside in his flesh the law with its commandments. When he dies on the cross, he fulfills everything in the Old Testament law. He, he fulfills all the sacrificial laws and the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws. They're not needed anymore. But he also deals with our debt before the law. Uh, the, the, the Jews in the Old Testament, they had the law, but they couldn't keep it. And so it became like a mirror that just showed them their sin. But Jesus takes that on himself. The great news is that we are no longer condemned by our law breaking because he has taken that law breaking on himself and he takes the punishment for that law breaking. And so we can have peace with God. It was uh, Neville Chamberlain famously who came back from Munich and said that it was going to be peace for our time. And of course he was, he was wrong. <laughs> he was completely wrong. Jesus says here is peace. Peace with God for this time. And for all time, for all of eternity, if you just trust me. In his death, Jesus, Jesus does more than, than any Nobel Prize winner could do in a thousand lifetimes. Peace with God. And that peace means access to God through the Father, the Son, the Spirit. You see, each member of the Trinity is active in this, in us having peace with God. And this peace is such great news. It must be preached to the whole world. It begins with Jesus in verse 17. He preaches do you remember the, uh, the, the, the first words that Jesus says after the resurrection to his disciples? We saw that in John 20 when we were going through the series at church last term. Jesus rises from the dead. He sees the disciples. He meets them. And the first thing he says is, peace be with you. I've died. I've risen from the dead so that you can have peace. And so we still preach that peace. That's what I'm doing this morning. That's what we do as a church. We preach the peace and we preach about the Prince of Peace because people need to hear. Do you know that peace? It's being offered to you this morning. If you don't know it, Jesus is offering it to you. And here's the third thing, the third step in Paul's timeline. As a result of what Jesus has done, God is making a new people. What are you now? You're united in Christ. I wonder what you're looking forward to when lockdown is eventually lifted. I'm looking forward to Greg's being open again. For some people, it'll be going back to that sports club or board games club or book group or experimental Japanese gardening club or something like that. I might have made the last one up. Sounds interesting though, doesn't it? Let's be clear. 
The church is not an organisation or a business or a normal charity or social group or sports club or anything like that. It is not like any other group of people in the world. There's nothing to compare with it. The church, not just CEC, but the church, we saw in chapter one, it was planned by God before the creation of the world. It's always been held by him and it will be for eternity. And it draws people from every background because the defining feature of membership of the church is that God has called you out of darkness into light, from death to life through his son. It's not your racial background. It's not your class. It's not your level of education. It's not whether you're a, you're, you're a man or a woman, whether you're a child or, or somebody who's much older. The thing that brings you in and the thing that joins you together is that you have a common saviour and that you have a common spirit living in you. If you're a Christian trusting in Jesus, you're part of the worldwide church. You weren't always, but God has brought you in. And he hasn't just brought you into the edges of it, like some, some of you over there. He hasn't just brought you so that are you in, are you out? No one really knows. He hasn't brought you in to serve him from a distance. Look at the wonderful language of verse 19. Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Think of a country where, where there's an internment camp and, uh, and people who are seen as illegal immigrants are, are locked up there. And then one day someone comes along and opens the gates. But they don't just release the people. They say, here's an invitation. And the invitation is to go to the president's mansion. You turn up at the president's mansion and they invite you in. And you're invited into this massive dining room. And you're invited to sit down at the dining table. And there's food and there's drink galore. And you eat with the president. That is what it means to be brought into God's family, into his household. Christians were foreigners and strangers, but now that is how he invites us in. That's the level. The church is God's people. It's built upon the foundation, verse 20, of the apostles and the prophets. One of the main jobs of an apostle and a prophet is to speak the word of God. So the church rests on the proclamation of the word of God. The Bible is central. If the church moves off that, then it's game over. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And, and that's not another foundation, as if you've got kind of two foundations going on. No, because I think the word of God points to Jesus on every single page. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the thing that shapes the rest of the building and ensures it is built up rightly. And believers are then built up right at the end of our passage, they're built up to become a holy temple in which God lives by his spirit. God's obviously everywhere. The whole universe couldn't contain God. But in the Old Testament, the temple represented God's presence on earth. It's called the Shekinah. And now we, the church, Christians, we are where God is represented in the world. And that building is still being built. The church is still growing. Isn't it amazing to think that even today, even as coronavirus dominates the world, the church is growing. People are becoming Christians in far-flung places that we've never visited. People are becoming Christians. People are growing as Christians. Coronavirus cannot stop God's plan for the church. So that is who we are now. Jesus has brought us home to where we fully belong. God's people united and built up in him. And it'd be great if we could really engage with this radical view of the church this morning. I think often we, we take the church for granted, although maybe less so at the moment. 
Let me just ask a few questions, questions I've been thinking about this week. Do you value the church? Do we value the church? Do we thank God for it? Do we thank God that God has saved us to be a part of it? Do we thank God for the local expressions of the church, so CEC? Do we thank God for the worldwide church? And the fact that, that even if there's hundreds of people uh, at CEC, even if there's lots of people watching live stream now, that's a tiny, tiny part of what is going on around the globe and throughout history. I think it's easy to forget that because our culture in Britain in the 21st century is quite individualistic. Okay, uh, that just means that, that we're a me culture. What can I get out of it? And that can even drift into the way we think about church as Christians. So we think of uh, Jesus dying for me at the cross. Think of Jesus saving me. Think of the, the Bible storyline and the gospel, the promises of God. What do they mean for me? And it's amazing the emphasis the New Testament puts on us. Us. All of us. The most common term for Christians in the New Testament is brothers and sisters. This is your family. And so do you love the church? It'd be a great thing to do maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, to just open a church suite and scroll down the list of members and photos and just thank God for all those people. Maybe read some church history or maybe read about some, some Christian things happening in Asia and South America and Eastern Europe and praise God for it. Here's another question for us to think about. Do we value unity with other Christians? Because the whole thrust of Paul's logic is that we are separated from God but there's also separation between people, particularly between Jews and Gentiles here. But because of Jesus, there should now be unity because we have a common saviour. Same foundation, same household, same building, same father, same spirit. It's an amazing unity. And do we value that? Unity doesn't mean everyone's going to be the same. If you think of the Trinity, the Trinity is one person. It's a unity. Sorry, it's, it's one God, it's a unity, but it's three persons, got it right. One God, three persons. So there's unity and there's diversity. If you have a church where everyone is exactly the same, something's gone wrong. We should welcome and encourage and love Christians from, from every background. The church is and should be the most diverse group on earth. And that is why racism is so incompatible with the Christian faith. So people in the past who've used the term Christian and talks about Christian things uh, to cover what they're doing, racist things like the Ku Klux Klan and, and people like that, that is horrifying. That is absolutely horrifying. It's easy for us to build walls that, that are more subtle than that, but, but build walls between us and other people. Are there groups of people at church that you'd never talk to, if you're honest, you'd never talk to them? If, you, if they walk through the door, you'd think, do you know what, I'm going to leave someone else to talk to them. I'm, I'm not, th those aren't my kind of people. Or do you see God's radical plan for the church, for it to be for all people? And are there parts of our community that, you know, our church isn't reaching? Everyone needs the peace that Jesus offers. And we need to want unity in our church. Occasionally I come across uh, people in churches, not CEC, I want to say, but I've seen them in other churches where, where their, their biggest hobby, their biggest hobby is causing division. And so they're just looking for the next uh, controversy, the next thing that will divide people. And as soon as everything's calm, the email comes through to the pastor saying, I'm not happy about this. And I've spoken to seven people this morning and none of us are happy. 
Sometimes we need to ask hard questions. Sometimes we need to ask hard questions of our leaders. But most, most times it is the right to fight for unity. Here's a thing that will really damage church unity. When you, when you think of yourselves as, as better than others. Matt referred to Martin Luther last week, the great reformer. And Luther makes a brilliant point that, that if, you, if you don't understand Ephesians chapter 2, the first part, if you don't understand that we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, if you think it's about what we do, about the stuff we do, that will cause lots of division within the church. Because you'll turn up at church, when we're back in the building, you'll turn up and you'll go, how do I compare to other people? So I'm not, I'm not as holy as Daph. But I'm much better than that Sam that was preaching the other, the other week. And so you play the comparison game and you want to be better than certain people to prove yourself. But Luther says, if you believe in justification by faith, we are all equal. Every one of us, new Christian, mature Christian, ministry team, someone in the young people's work. doesn't matter. You're all equal before God. How on earth can you be divided? Just sinners saved by grace. Are there things that we need to repent of? Are there any people that we haven't loved in the way that we shouldn't, that we should, and we need to say sorry to? Are there any relationships that we need to, to restore? Let me just say that it's, it's a great blessing to be in a church that is so united. I've seen divided churches. CEC seems like a really united church. And in a period where, where the country is moving from we're all in this together to being much more argumentative, I think, about how we come out of lockdown. There's a lot of disagreements going on at the moment. It'd be great as a church if we keep fighting for that unity. We might disagree over things, but let's fight for that unity. We're all together in Christ. And here's the final thing. Do you value meeting together? In Hebrews, we're told to not give up meeting together. Meeting as a local church is amazing. And this passage is a great reminder why. But we're obviously in a strange period at the moment where we can't meet together physically. But we are still the church. We are still the church. CEC is still a local expression of, of God's church. I saw a news article saying churches are shut, churches are closed. Not really. Buildings are closed. Church is still alive. And I'm thankful that we can still meet together. I'm thankful for the internet. I'm even thankful, I think, still for Zoom. If this had happened 20 years ago, we couldn't have done a service like this. We couldn't have done life groups in the way we're doing them. We couldn't have done YPF in the way that we're doing that. Loads of things that we are able to do. And that is a great blessing and we should be thankful for that. It's great to see my life group on a Tuesday night, even if it's over the internet. But it is hard, isn't it? I spoke to someone from church last week. I said, what can I pray for you? And they said, to be honest, I'm all Zoomed out. Now, just think back six months ago, if you'd said, can I pray for you? And someone said, I'm all zoomed out. That wouldn't have made any sense. But I'd imagine now lots of us understand what that means. And while Zoom and the internet are blessings and they're great ways to keep things going, it is right, I think, that we long to meet together again physically. Because meeting physically is a foretaste of eternity. It points forward to the day when Jesus will take us, his people, to the new creation. And we will be there truly united without any of our fallings out or disagreements, without the ways that we mess up. You know, we are a group of sinners at the moment. But there will be perfect unity and perfect joy amongst God's incredibly diverse people, united around Christ. 
Here's how Revelation 7 describes it. I'm going to finish with this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before seconds. the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Father, thank you so much for the church. Thank you that Jesus has won it as a people for himself. Thank you that Ten, we, if we're trusting nine, in him, we are part eight, of it. Seven, Please will we six, value it and love five, it and serve it four, just three, as Jesus two, does. Two, one. Oh.